0: hey i'm rachel billingsley
1: and i'm luke billingsley and this is gmt talk our new insider podcast where we talk about all things gmt
0: today on gmt talk we will be interviewing designer and longtime friend of gmt herman luttman
1: herman is a prolific game designer with over 30 games published including the popular charles s roberts award nominee donna the zeds herman has designed two games published by gmt at any cost, Mets, eighteen seventy, which is part of Herman's popular blind sword series, and
2: the new The Plum Island Horror.
0: Herman, thanks for being here. We appreciate the time you're taking to come on GMT Talk and chat with us.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. It's nice to see yeah. you too. Yeah, nice <laughs> to see you
1: too. We're glad to have you.
2: Great, thanks.
1: So, uh, starting off, congrats on the upcoming release of The Plum Island Horror. Um, thank you for. Any listeners, viewers who don't know, The Plum Island Horror is a one to four player game featuring cooperative play that combines tactical level unit management with a tower defense style survival mechanic. Uh, Each player controls one of six unique factions, which represent the various groups that populate Plum Island, the fictional Plum Island.
0: (laughs) So what inspired you to design this game, a cooperative game in the horror genre?
2: Well, it goes. uh, Oh, this is one of my little uh, uh, designing tropes that I like. I I love designing some horror, some you know, alt history or or non historical gaming. This one in particular goes all the way back to my VPG days after I designed Dawn of the Zeds. And uh, Gene Billingsley um, was a big fan of Dawn of the Zeds. Haven't heard of him. Yeah, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) I haven't heard of him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one of our original plans was that, you know, we would eventually get Dawn of the Zeds in with GMT as a big box game and all that, which was the typical procedure we used back uh, in the early days of VPG. That didn't work out, obviously. And uh, ever since then, I've been thinking about a way to do a Dawn of the Zeds type game for GMT. And it was while I was working on Miracle at Dunkirk for Legion War Games, which is uh, a game on, obviously, Dunkirk in 1940. And I remember remarking to Fred, my developer, I said, man, this is, you know, the Germans are closing in on this, this, uh, this beachhead and uh, the main part of the game. It's not even so much a war game. It's more of an evacuation game. Yeah. So You're not supposed to defeat the Germans. You're not going to defeat them. The thing is to hold them off until you can evacuate enough soldiers. And then I just flippantly said, boy, it's like a whole bunch of zombies coming in <laughs> and trying to take over the beaches. And from there, I was like, oh, wait a minute now. This actually is kind of a cool idea about an enclosing horrific enemy and your job is to, well, in not soldiers that you're saving, but now let's say citizenry or you know, uh, assets or, you know, and how do you get these people off? What, what methods do you use? Well, you could use helicopters, you could use a bridge, you could use a ferry. So that all then just started snowballing into this whole idea of the Plum Island horror. Um, and you know, I presented it to Andy Lewis. Oh God, I don't know how many years ago at Prescon and he loved it. And then the rest is history.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad that you came up with it. It's such a
2: great or game. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's funny. You mentioned Plum Island. There is a, uh, So the reason it's Plum Island there's, there I found out eventually that there's like three real Plum Islands. The one. The reason I came up with Plum Island originally is that I'm originally from Long Island. I live in Tennessee now, um, and there is an actual Plum Island at the off the east end of Long Island, and it's uh-huh. it's uh, infamously known as a animal bacterial, behavioral, whatever, this lab. And it's very secretive. You can't go there. It looks awful when you go by it on a ferry.
1: <laughs> and
2: it has this uh, horrific history, you know, or at least, you know, supposed history, rumors about it. And I just immediately thought, well, that's that's a great name because because of that connection. And then I found out there's also a Plum Island, I think, in Massachusetts, I think people told me. And then there's another one somewhere else. Huh. so that is that is the reason I picked Plum Island,
1: yeah, it'll be interesting if other New Yorkers make that connection
2: as well Some have like, oh, I've seen
1: this <laughs> before but yeah
2: yeah, and it shows up once in a while and and uh, there's a couple of shows uh and a couple of movies it's 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 referenced,
1: okay, nice, so not only is it um you know you mentioned kind of a Dunkirk esque. Mm -hmm. situation um the tower defense type mechanic where the uh horrors come in from the top of the map but also you've thrown all these pieces into it Mm -hmm. that make each game so different and have all these unique kind of hilarious moments so like how did you design it in a way that it creates those unique, surprising moments. What's the special
2: sauce? Well, I don't know if there is a special sauce. It, you know, and a lot of people ask me, like, you know, how did you come up with this? How did this? Evolve? It, it really is trial and error. I, I don't even. I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm some kind of mad scientist and <laughs> came up with all this stuff off the top. A lot of it's trial and error. You know, you're, you're playing the game. It starts off as a simple tower defense, and you go, Well, this is kind of dry. You know, the guys are just marching down and you're just trying to stop them and you end up turtling down here. We have to do something to break that up. Yeah. And then it's also for me, it's also playing a lot of other games. And I say this to every designer I talk to, a would-be designer or or experienced designers who have the same, you know, the same ideas I have. It's playing a lot of different games that give you the, you know, the spark to think of approaching a problem a different way. So in the case of Plum Island Horror, you'll see uh, elements of Aeon's End with how, um, how, how it's determined who goes, you know, the, the turn order cards. Mm-hmm. You'll see a little clank in there, which is the colored cubes in the biohazard bag. Um, some Eldritch Horror, which is the idea of pulling these cards that give you a mini story that how you proceed in the game is, is based on which option you pick or maybe it's based on the unit that you have there. So those all tie in together so that the values of your units have some meaning to the game, right? So it's all interconnected. Yeah. And I don't even know what other. I mean, there were just so many. Uh, Fallen Land, a post-apocalyptic game was influential for me. Um, uh, the follow mechanic is something I uh, experienced in Tiny Epic Galaxies, which I absolutely loved. And one of the keys to that mechanic is it keeps everybody around the table involved constantly. Right. So even if Luke's going, um, um, Rachel will be thinking about, well, should I follow or not follow? Because I'd really like to do this, and I'm going to have an opportunity. But the key for this game, as opposed to uh, some of the other follow mechanics in other games, is that I had I built in a risk to doing that. Right. So you don't have a lot of actions, so you're going to want to do follows to get more, you know, your troops, not your troops, your your people moving and doing more things. But the risk of following is that you may set off a bad event. So even the bad events, I mean, there is one there is one token in the game that automatically a bad event is going to happen. You have to pull an event card. But how many bad events you have is kind of in the control of the players by how much you follow and therefore push your luck. Yeah. So there is an investment in even in the bad stuff happening to you in the game. So in that sense, just try to keep people feeling that they're playing the game, that bad things are, chaos is happening, which is always my, my thing, but that they're not totally uninvested in what's happening. The game's not playing them right so you do have some investment in what's going on once in a while it's going to throw you a curveball but every curveball you get thrown there is a possibility you know you can come up with a strategy to counter it so it's it's a constant give and take um and i like that in my games i like i like games to surprise me which is why i like chaos and as yeah. long as you inject that chaos you know with a with a constant theme right that it's not just totally chaotic, you know. You know, Martians land and destroy everybody, or something like that. <laughs> and that goes back to Blind Swords. Even Blind Swords is chaotic, but it's 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 historically weighted chaos. Right. It's chaos that could happen on a civil war battlefield or on a Franco-Prussian war battlefield. And the chaos in this game, yeah, it's a little stretched re- reality, but it's still amongst reality <laughs> in our little in, in our little fantasy horrific world here. It's still you know, you can still nod your head and go, Yeah, I could see that happening. You know, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: I liked that a lot when I played the the level of chaos, but also just the player agency. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I noticed playing was that there it has a lot of subtle references and Easter eggs. For example, like one of the characters you can control in the Pearl Security Services faction is named Kevin Blart and yes. his vehicles a
2: segue. So what what was <laughs> one of your favorite Easter eggs that you included? Yeah. Oh my God! It's just this—they don't even qualify as Easter eggs anymore because they're just all <laughs> over the place, right? You don't even have to—you don't even have to have to hunt for them. Uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, the Blart thing is—it's funny because I just—I think I had just watched Mall Cop. Is that the name of them? Yeah, it was Mall I Cop. So. Right? Yeah. yeah,
1: Paul Blart Mall Cop.
2: Yeah, I would just watch that movie, and I just kept laughing at him on the Segway going around <laughs> like a tough guy, right? And I said, I got to yeah. put that in the game. Yeah, it's perfect. Right. So a lot of those. So, I mean, the whole game is basically Easter eggs, Um, many of which, honestly, uh, people won't get if you're if you're uh, under 40, you're not going to get these (laughs) a lot of these jokes. Um, but I, so I don't have a good enough imagination to come up with these great fantasy names for people, right? You know, I I don't know where authors get all their names for Game of Thrones and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So I usually go to, well, what's a, what's a common theme and then just work off that as a model. So even in, in, maybe I'm telling you this for the first time, but in Dawn of the Zeds, almost all of the heroes are named after New York Mets baseball players. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> that, that, nice. That's cuz I was like, okay, I'm a big Mets fan. I'm just going to start grabbing guy, you know, guys I like, you know, from the game. Yeah. So, uh I kind of I kind of did that with this and then doubled down and tripled down on that idea. So, my favorite, well, I have family members all over the all over the place, friends of friends, the uh the civilians, <clears throat> you'll note that there's many civilians. Including the two of you are in the game. Yeah. Why is
1: Rachel's Uber Chakra Yoga?
0: your Uber Chakra Yoga. Luke's
2: Use the Force comics. That's <laughs> right. Uh, Ken's in there. Uh, he's got a coffee and a roastery. And your dad's in there as Gene the Dancing Machine Studios. And <laughs> yeah. With, that's older people remember Hall well, Game. Well, there was a show. so there was a show called the gong show and there was a guy that came out all the time called gene gene the dancing machine (laughs) so that's where where i got that from Um, so i mean do i have a favorite one i don't know i got one of my favorite tv shows back in the 60s so i was in my you know teenager it was a show called f troop and many people out there will never heard of it many of you will have I had got every character of F Troop in the uh, the National Guard contingent. So uh, Captain is in there, um, Agarn, uh, Sergeant O'Rourke, Fort Courage is in there. Um, and one of my favorite episodes was Harvey Corman. I don't know if you know who he is, but many people will know who Harvey Corman is. He played a uh, – he was a guest – on the show, and he played a Prussian balloonist who would balloon into the Fort Courage. And he had a little dachshund with him. And his dachshund's name was schnitzel, right? And I actually, we actually <laughs> subsequently named our dog, who's since passed away, but his name was schnitzel. Oh. And that's why schnitzel brewery's in the game. It's named after that. So Harvey Corman would stand there and go, my schnitzel likes you, yeah? <laughs> so, I always thought it was like, this is my favorite episode. So I threw that in there. But there's, awesome. all of, uh, there's all sorts of there's all sorts references uh, of other shows. Uh, the Honeymooners is in there. Um, there's some more modern references to like uh, Naked and Afraid, Plum Island, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> we got that one in the last game we played, and we all oh, started <laughs> cracking up. Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, as you're writing these things, and it's just and it's not pre-planned. It's kind of like you're just coming up with things, and you think, thinking, and they just kind of float in, and You know, framing it—if you're thinking about a show, you're just thinking of how that would come across in the game, and then coming up with a weird way to look at it—it's just a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, yeah. So there are plenty of Easter eggs in there. Uh, I apologize to people who think it's stupid, but
1: (laughs) I love it. No way. (laughs) Rachel, what was the story from your game a couple, a few days ago um, with the
2: bees? Oh, oh uh, I told, I told Ken that story. Yeah.
0: The, I think his name is Paul King or Tiger King, something like that. And he Phil, shot his
2: Phil Tiger King. Yes. Phil Tiger King Phil. Yes, and shot his golf golfer, club at yeah.
0: murder bees or whatever they were called. I've,
2: yeah. I was telling that story of uh, Phil Tiger King uh, taking his, uh, his um, driver and shooting golf balls at murder hornets. Murder yep. hornets. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's, so that story, I like that story a lot because that's exactly um, the kind of narrative I want to get out of the game. So, and that's something that you know maybe you'll bring up in two weeks, right? When you're at a party, and like, hey, I was playing this game where I shoot golf balls at murder hornets. Yeah, um, and that's that's one of the secrets even to Dawn of the Zeds in this game is I I am like I said before I'm not a fiction writer. I don't you know I don't have enough imagination to do that, but I do try to give the players. Pieces of a story that they can craft together to make a complete narrative out of. Yeah. So the same thing with Zeds. Zeds are just a series of zombie car themed cards from movies and books and shows and whatever else. And same here. And how they come up randomly, you can just kind of piece this together and come up with your own narrative about what happened. Yeah. Very much like, for example, Combat Commander, you do the same thing. You kind of build a narrative off mm-hmm. of the right what's going on with your cards and, and yeah. the results on the board. Definitely.
1: Yeah, it makes for a really fun, replayable experience. Mm-hmm. And then you get those stories that I think kind of can advertise for the game as well just by word of mouth. Like you're I, saying, at a party, you're like, oh, I shot this golf yes. ball Murder and, and I've,
2: I've said this for years the greatest reviews i've ever gotten for dawn of the zeds is not nobody mentions the game mechanics or anything they just tell me the story of what pickles did at the bridge or you know what what uh, uh sheriff hunt did at the at the farm you know it's yeah. just they're just telling me as if it's just a book they read or something and that to yeah. me is the greatest compliment you can have yeah yeah
1: super cool um so i'm curious a little bit about the development process mm-hmm. do you have a couple um moments a couple like specific game mechanics that you either added or subtracted throughout development um that you can well, think of that made a big difference in the final product
2: well i can tell you one in particular that gene was involved in and in that we were in the early process of development and originally i had Each of the pieces that you would have, I would have, they were just the name of it. So there's the neighborhood watch, and the one piece was called the watch team, and another one was called the veterans, and one was called the... So it was just a generic name of what these people represented, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were playing with it like that for a while, and then Gene said to either me or Ken, I think he said it to me on the phone. He goes, you know, Herm everything looks great but one of the things i loved about dawn of the zeds is you identified with each person like they were named after people and therefore you identify more closely with them yeah that was a big turn for me in that i then when he goes yeah you know he's right you know so i renamed so that's why all these units are named after people specific so in the roles i i say this is not a this is not a piece of this one person it's that person is either the most prominent personality or the leader of the group or whatever but it's a bunch of people but we're going to identify it by this particular person and that again makes the player feel more connected with the faction that they have yeah so that was a big that was a big turnaround because i had done it a little differently because i didn't know I wanted it to be more of a grandiose scale because you're talking about the whole island. So I didn't want one or two people just running around doing all this stuff. I kind of wanted groups of people doing that. But he was right. I still needed to name it after somebody so that you have that connection. Yeah, definitely. Um, As far as other, and then that's the whole thing. The whole development uh, uh, thing with Ken and myself is, I mean, this game looks quite a bit different than when I showed it to Andy. Four years ago or whatever it was. And that's and that's the real value of development work, right? Is that I can present an idea that's a good idea that's a little you know a little rough around the edges, and the development process gets that to be a nice, uh, um, flowing machine, you know, where things yeah. just connect better. And then as we we were adding different layers to it, because you know when you start out, and I present especially a game that's a, that's this unusual for GMT, I don't really know where where the borders are, right? What are the parameters that I can go? Can I have yeah. two thousand cards, or do you only want twenty five cards? You know, do you? So how far can I go in every direction? Right. So I mean, we went. What were the components going to look like? That's where we evolved to standees, right? I I think that was Ken's idea. Like, hey, we could make these people standees and make them look a lot different on the board than the horrors. Mm -hmm. Um, Just stuff like that. And again, it's trial and error. It's throw the stuff out there, play it. Let's fix this. All right, let's try it now with this fixed. And then we add this layer. of. I mean, you know, it's how we ended up with three decks of cards because that's what it ended up being. The best combination yeah with with those three decks Uh, even at the beginning of the game i had i had gas food and supplies as three different resources yeah because logically i'm thinking all right well gas is going to run cars and the food's got to be fed to the people and the supplies do other things you, you know generically but as we played more and more it was just it was too fiddly with those three different resources right and one of the main goals for this game was to make it accessible to not only to war gamers or experienced gamers, but maybe it's something you would play with, you know, a family member that doesn't normally play these kinds of games. And then having right. those three different types of resources was just a, it was just a bridge too far. So I eventually, I remember telling Fred, I said, Fred, I am think I'm just going to make these generic supplies. So what? You use your imagination. I'm collecting supplies here and I'm using them for gas or whatever, it doesn't matter. You could, if you've collected what you think is food, and you're using it to, you just say, "Well, I traded this stuff on the black market for gas, or something along those lines." You know? Yeah. I mean, you can you can justify it, and it just made the game a lot smoother. So yeah, that, that whole the whole development process, especially in this case, we had so many people involved. was It was hard. It was a lot of work, but it ended up paying off in the end. And it's a, it, it is a critical part of. Of design work or at least getting a design out that is 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 the best it can be yeah um, and you know one thing that you got to learn as a designer too is you got to accept play test and development feedback and not be married you know just lock stock and barrel to what you've produced you've got to be open to growing and just making this the best product you can make it.
1: yeah it's so interesting you wouldn't really think that Having you know this aspect of the game, we kind of use general terms mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, these are this is like sheriff number one, this is sheriff number two, or something mm-hmm. like that. And then in this other aspect of the game, we've got food, gas, and supplies, and just switching those to where the characters are more specific and then mm-hmm. the supplies are all just supplies that right. that would make such a big difference like narratively, but it does. And it, it it's does. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a combination of narratively and, and, and gameplay function. Like, you know, you don't want to make it hard to, for people to play the game. You don't yeah. want to be fighting the game constantly. And, and right. that's something I've learned over the years. You know, I mean, I've been designing what 12 years now or something like that. And I look back and I can say, Oh, I could have, I could have done that a lot smoother. Um, you know, it, it, you got to get away from the cr- the crunchiness. I know I keep saying crunchiness, but, you know, it, games have to be accessible. Uh, if you're fighting the game, now, and, and, and by the way, I mean, there are people who like that kind of crunchiness and want to struggle, you know, and, and wrestle with a game for three hours per turn and all that yeah. kind of
1: thing.
2: <laughs> but generally, people don't. And that's one thing I learned playing other games, too, is that the other games are designed to be played in a couple of hours max. Like, you want to get to a conclusion. Right. And when I was with my gaming group in New York, we'd play every Saturday, and we'd play multiplayer, cooperative games a lot, and we would go through two to three games a session to, to conclusion. And there was something very satisfying about that, you know, that we weren't getting together for four hours and playing two turns of a big war yeah. game, right? <laughs> we, were, we were knocking out three games to conclusion, had a great time, and I'm like, yeah, I like that feeling. You know, I'd like to, and I know in the Heart, I, I know it's a little longer than your normal, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast, but uh, one, one thing I would do for any kind of expansion would be to maybe come up with a short game um, or ex- express game, however you want to, you know, a version you could play in maybe an hour and a half to two hours. Okay. Uh, yeah. Huh. That sounds pretty <laughs> cool. Do you have (laughs) any other expansion ideas you'd like to share? Oh, well, I I, I don't know if I should... Well, apparently we got a green light to actually start working on an expansion already, so that's kind of cool. Sweet. We have... uh, I already have a sheet started with a number of ideas. Um, I like them. I I like them a lot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we have, like, three new factions we're thinking of. Um, A NASCAR team... A traveling circus mm. and a uh, a mysterious cult called the monkey monks. It's <laughs> run by Elon Monk. And, <laughs> and they're anarchists. So the uh,
1: anarchist monks.
2: Anarchist monks <laughs> who, who, by the way, have been predicting this this uh, this catastrophe for for many, many years. Okay, mm. and it's finally come true. The prophecy. Uh, the traveling circus is actually really funny. Um, of course, the compound would be a clown car, which would have unlimited <laughs> stacking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do stuff like that. Um, nothing, nothing new mechanically. Well, not not you know anything crazy new. So I don't you know you don't have to re- relearn the game. A lot of problems with a lot of expansions, as you guys probably know, is that they add more rules and change mechanics so now you have to yeah. kind of relearn the game constantly so if we do an expansion it would be a you know more stuff expansion so three new factions three new mutations um and then more cards in each of the decks like i said we, uh ken definitely wants to do a nightmare mode <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. and he's got he's got he's got some evil evil proposals for making it a nightmare mode. I, he's got one. I'll tell you one that he said. He said, we're going to ta- come up with an option. We're going to take out all the three value civilians. Okay. So that you won't have enough to evacuate the right number of that you need, so you have to go searching for the VIP civilians, mm. so you can get enough points to evacuate. <laughs> wow, oh, Ken, that is that is truly evil, evil thinking as far as I'm yeah. concerned. <laughs> oh, um, so and uh, so that nightmare mode, and like I said, I, I want to try to come up with a way, maybe to if you only have two hours to kill and you want to play a faster game, you know, try to come up with something for that. But it should be a lot of yeah. fun. It should be a lot of fun.
1: That sounds awesome.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm looking forward to that.
0: So I know we talked about this, I think, the other day, but we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your design philosophy regarding fictional games like Dawn of the Zeds and Plum Island Horror. So, Mm -hmm. like, versus a historical game, what would your approach be to designing (sighs) non-historical games?
2: So, yeah, I... I've always referred to my non-historical games as my palate cleansers (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I think a designer should always do one of them because what it lets you do is it just lets you design freely without the constraints of a historical situation. Mm -hmm. And it's very... Uh, freeing I guess you'd say because you can just design all these wonderful mechanics and, and and rules and effects not having to worry about whether that actually happened on the at Gettysburg or not you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it opens up your mind as far as mechanics and and, and what you could do and, and what the effects will be and I find that very very freeing and, and uh, liberating as far as uh, design philosophy. And you can do crazy things that, you know, most of my non-historical games are just playing fun, right? I just want to have mm-hmm. fun playing this game. Yeah. So if it's a sci-fi game, um, I did a little, uh, a little sci-fi game, Invaders from Dimension X, and the only reason I designed it is because somebody challenged me to design a game that was total chaos. And I said, I could do that. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> so I just had a game designed where the chaos... Would come in and they just come in randomly and do random things and you have to deal with it. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, and it's so that that to me is very freeing. Now, historical games, I I don't even know, you know, many people realize how much work goes into even the smallest historical war game or historical game. Period. It doesn't have to be a war game because the so especially for a a game. Let's say let's say Gettysburg. All right. The amount of information out there and getting that information absolutely correct, consistently correct, and simulating that battle to the satisfaction of all the historians and war gamers and military historians is is a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of work. So if I'm working on something like that, I mean, I literally have books spread out all over the place, cross-referencing reinforcement schedules and all that kind of thing. (laughs) Yes, I enjoy doing that immensely. I, I find it very educational. I'm working on a game now in the Battle of Chickamauga, which I knew very little about b- before I started, and now learning uh, in detail about it as I design the game is actually very rewarding. It, it really is. Uh, but it's an immense... I mean, it's an it's a year of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of just getting that, that going. Uh, so, yeah, there's... There is a lot of more book research, obviously, involved in a historical game. A lot more of I can design mechanics, but those mechanics have to be realistic for the time period I'm simulating. And like I said, all those little points of when troops are coming in and leaving and how good were commanders and how good were certain regiments, that's all got to be researched and put in your game accurately. Obviously, if you're designing Plum Island Horror, I don't have to worry about that that much, (laughs) right? Because it's my history. Though Plum Island Horror is based on a real story, That was covered up. (laughs) Right. We did a lot of research (laughs) into this one, too. A lot of interviews. Uh, Yeah, but that's the big difference for me, at least as a designer.
1: Great. Cool. Um, Speaking of non-historical games, we have heard a few rumors that you might be working on some other non-historical games.
2: Is that true? (laughs) I don't know.
1: Is it true? And is there anything you can tell us about that?
2: Uh well, in my whole, well, I am. I well, as far you mean, just as far as GMT is concerned, or yeah, I mean, yeah, might um, be in the
1: ballpark for GMT games.
2: Oh, did you use the word "ballpark" on purpose? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Well, Ken, and I don't want to say... Nothing's official, but uh, Ken, who's a, who, uh, who's a developer for Plum Island Har, Ken Kuhn, um, I found out kind of by accident because he saw a post I wrote on another... I don't know, on VGG somewhere. He goes, hey, I'm a big baseball fan. I didn't know you are a big baseball fan. So I said, yeah, I actually, I have a baseball game on TTS that I've been futzing around with because I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan. And we started talking, and then we've actually... Working together now on a baseball simulation. It's not a. Um, it's not your prototypical baseball game. It's not like a stratomatic you know, re- redone or anything like that. It's more of a strategic baseball game where you're playing series and you're playing an entire season. So it's more about managing a team and the personnel of the team. And you're playing. Okay. You do you do play games, but you do it abstractly. And it also has a bit of deck building and dice mechanics, too. So it's a dice and card game where you're building a team and managing a team through a season. So that's the idea anyway. We're, we're still in the infancy of it. Um, and um, uh, apparently Gene told Ken that he would like to see something else like Plum Island Horror using that same kind of evacuation of people mechanic with the tracks. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's something we have to figure out. I mean, I, obviously, I don't want to make it exactly like Plum Island Hard. That would be s- silly, right? So it would yeah. have to be something uh, a bit different. Um, I don't think it would be anything historical. Nothing I can think of off the top of my head, but um, you know, something along that same kind of flavor. Okay. Yeah.
1: Nice. Yeah. Does that sound hmm. good. That was yep. in the ballpark for sure. <laughs> uh,
2: nice. I hope point. Ken doesn't get mad at me for mentioning this. <laughs> we can always we'll cut it out. later if he doesn't <laughs>
0: <laughs> So, uh, we have a couple of recurring questions that we like to ask everyone we interview. Sure. Um, so, one of those we've got Do you have a favorite game by another GMT designer?
2: Oh, yeah. I actually mentioned it before. Combat Commander is one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorite games. Uh, Chad Jensen. Uh, that game, basically, you know, if people, when people ask me, well, what inspired you to do Blind Swords the way you do? And, and I always mention Combat Commander because Combat Commander proved to me that A, games can be fun. War games can be fun, too, right? Yeah. But B, it also taught me that chaos can be historical, Hmm. Right. What happens on the battlefield chaotically, you know, is, is something that actually did happen. Right. Yeah. So as I said before, that game taught me that you can build a narrative after you know, your hand builds your narrative of what's going on in the battlefield. So you can, you can justify things that are happening on the battlefield because they're all within the context of possibilities on a, on a a civil war battlefield on a world war two battlefield. And yeah. I loved playing that game because of the surprises. Mm-hmm. Like I told you, I love playing games where I'm surprised by the game, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I'm not a chess player where I want to know everything that's going to happen. And if I do this, this will happen. And if he does that, this will happen. I like, I like wrenches thrown in there that I have to deal with and be surprised by. To me, it's exciting and more adventurous to do that. And Comet Commander did that all the time. I mean, oh, yeah. I remember, I remember playing the Pacific version and, and, like, Japanese troops were just popping up behind me, you know, grabbing VP. I'm like, oh, no, I knew they were going to do that. You know, like, yeah. But what it, does, what it does teach you, though, is that you have to be prepared. And this goes into the blind swords thing, is that the commander has to be prepared for the unexpected, right? I mean, you yeah. have to have a plan B and a plan C because if this attack doesn't go well or if this one goes really well, how do you exploit it? If mm. this goes badly, how do you defend against that? And to me, it just makes it makes it a more fun and b more realistic, all yeah. at the same time. And 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 definitely, Combat Commander taught me that. So yeah, yeah that would be my number one. And Paz of, like- of Glory was a was taught me also that World War One was playable, okay. playable and enjoyable. Yeah. 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 Um, but the thing about Combat Commanders, you knew what your total deck was, and if you just didn't grab those cards. In your hand at that time, if you had, you know, five weak cards, you still, as a commander or a player, you still have to know how to deal with that, right? Have you set your guys up so that you can get through the dry spots, so that when you get your good fire cards and all that, that you can then exploit it? So it it, it was, yeah, it was, it was a terrific game, and yeah, yeah, I guess it did. I mean, it did set the tone. At least for me, it did too. Uh, It sets the tone for a lot of card-driven games or card-driven war games, anyway. Yeah,
1: that's one of my favorites as well. Yep. So another question we like to ask, uh, Who are who's one or a couple um, people in the hobby who've had a positive influence on your growth and development as a game designer, or as mm-hmm. a gamer in general?
2: OK, um, boy, there's actually a lot. So Alan Emmerich gave me my first opportunity to design a game and get it published. So I'm always I'm always grateful to him for giving me that opportunity. He ran VPG for many years, victory point games. Yeah. And he, you know, his his specialty was getting, you know, finding new designers and helping them get started. And that's what he did for me. And yeah, I made a lot of mistakes at the beginning, but he didn't just say, Oh well, we're not gonna we're not gonna take your game. See ya. Mm. He would actually take the idea and help nourish it, you know, help develop mm. it, help get it you know, uh, presentable. Yeah. Um, uh, right now, one of my best friends is Mark Walker, who, who used to run lock and load and he runs flying pig games. Now we became great friends in the meantime. And, uh, he's been a great influence on helping me take what I knew about designing and just really polishing it up, making it the best it could be. Um, and, and letting me, Fiddle around with starting new ideas. That's where Invaders from Dimension X was with his Tiny Battles games and uh, um, Tiny Battle Publishing, and you know he would let me throw out some new, totally bizarre ideas out there in the, in these little game formats, and a lot of them have paid off and and have, have led to other other designs. Hmm. Um, who else is there? There's, uh, <clears throat> um, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Launius. Right? He did Arkham Horror, and he did Defenders of the Realm, and Defenders of the Last Stand. And part of that is because he's another guy that just loves chaos. He, his games are just, you know, <laughs> all hell breaks loose in all his games, and they're just so much fun. So I actually finally got to meet him at Origins. Uh, personally, I, you know, I just happened to see him at a table, and he was working on the new version of Defenders of the... Um, Defenders of the Realm, and we shook hands. And uh, I said, "Oh man, I got I'm a big fan of all your stuff." And and you know, we, we talked for a while. And then later on, he came running up to me, and he taps me on the back. He goes, "Herm, I love your designs." <laughs> he <laughs> goes, "I gave Dawn of the Zeds as a gift to somebody. I didn't even give him one of my own games." <laughs> and like to me, I was like, I was like floating on air for the rest uh-huh. of the weekend. It was fantastic. yeah, it's so um, cool. And uh, one of the earliest designers. That I got it was a guy named Rob Markham. I don't know if he used to design for 3W, and he was another guy that just had this knack of making games accessible but unique, right? So he he designed a whole bunch of series of um, uh, English Civil War, and uh, he actually he actually designed a game called Blood and Iron, which introduced me to the Franco-Prussian War, which led to At Any Cost. Because I didn't know anything about the Franco-Prussian War. When, when I played his game, I was like, oh, man, this is really cool. What an interesting period of history. And it made me, you know, go and explore it some more. He was a, he, I have – I haven't – I don't know if he's still around or not, to be honest with you. It's been many years. But he was a fantastic designer. And, again, he taught me – the reason I liked his games is they were, they were small format, But they were immediately accessible but they weren't the same old thing trudged over and over again right it was it was a unique feel a unique take to uh to all those conflicts and i really appreciated that so i tried to emulate that as much as possible
1: yeah thanks for sharing this yeah
0: Yeah, that's cool well that's all the time we have for GNT talk today and Thanks, Herman, for taking the time to talk with us. And thank you for nice. having
2: me, man. It was, it was a blast. It was really enjoyable, and I and I hope uh, I hope Plumb Hard does well for GMT, and I hope there's more stuff to come down the line.
1: Yeah, we thank do you. too. Yeah, thank you for your vision and your skill and your games, and for bringing such cool and
0: interesting games to GMT.
2: Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah,
0: it was great right. to talk
2: with you, Herman. Take care.
0: Great to talk with you. We'll see you next time on GMT Talk.